0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. We have no advertisers on this podcast, so it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro. In this conversation, we talk about global liquidity, Bitcoin, halving, what all the institutional investors are doing, and why the president may or may not matter to financial markets. I always enjoy talking to Darius, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here is my conversation with Darius Dale. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All
1: views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Darius here in studio, just swagged out. My number one question, like we talked about last time, is global liquidity. If global liquidity increases, asset prices go up. If it drains, asset prices go down. I am a simple, simple man. Which direction are we headed right now?
1: Uh, So let's uh, let's take a a trip down memory lane and talk about where we've been with global liquidity because I think that really sets the stage. For kind of the the near term and medium term outlooks for the for this particular variable and there's a lot of variables by the way that drive asset markets this for the past let's call it two to three years has been the primary drivers so obviously it's a big deal so if you go back into so let's just take a step back and what the hell is global liquidity mm-hmm. right we talk about liquidity all the time as investors but we don't really have a you know real true academic consensus on what the concept of global liquidity is so mm-hmm. uh in the context of uh trying to understand this and understanding this from my you know, quantitative economics background you know, I think there's a few statistics that we like to focus on that give you a general sense of kind of where this kind of squishy concept of global liquidity are. Uh, number one, uh, you look at the aggregated central bank balance sheet. You know, particularly across the major, uh, you know, kind of G20 economies, U.S., you know, the ECB, the Fed, the Bank of England. PBOC, the, the Bank of Japan, Swiss National Bank, et cetera. These kind of, at least if you, those six uh, central banks, they account for more than 90% of the total central bank balance sheet. So if you're going to spend any time aggregating this stuff, definitely start there and focus on there. Uh, the number two metric uh, we would talk about is what I would consider to be private sector liquidity. So that's public sector liquidity, liquidity coming from central banks. There's private sector liquidity, liquidity that comes from commercial banks. Mm -hmm. And the best way to track that, um, it's not necessarily a direct proxy, but the best way to track that is through uh, M1 money supply, narrow money supply. Mm -hmm. Uh, narrow money supply includes the monetary base, but it's primarily driven uh, by bank deposits, uh, demand deposits uh, in banks. And so if you look at both of those metrics, there's other metrics as well, like world FX reserves It's less relevant, but um, those kinds of uh, things do matter. When you go back and you look at the central bank, global central bank balance sheet, at a right around 30 trillion, it had increased a couple trillion off the lows of late 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, you know, part of what we've seen in this kind of year to date, in Bitcoin kind of the bottoming in the S&P type exposures, risk assets since, you know, kind of October of last year has really been a function of that uptick. Well, the one thing I would call out on that is that we've actually reversed negatively um, in recent months. In fact, it kind of peaked out in late January, early February at the previous year to date high in the S&P and we have yet to uh, kind of recover um, on that level. Um, if you look at a uh, global uh, narrow money supply, it's actually continuing to trend lower if you if you look at it on a year over year basis, uh, both are trending lower world narrow money supplies, uh, very narrow, modestly uh, negative at minus 0.3%. Domestic narrow money supply because of the depend deposit outflow that we're seeing primarily from regional banks, but it's, it's not just regional banks. It's large commercial banks as well here in the U.S. That's down about 6% on a year over year basis. And that's about as sharp as a contraction as you're ever going to see. And so the improvement in global liquidity that was primarily driven by this inflection central bank balance sheets, primarily driven by the Bank of Japan defending its yield curve control policy and the PBOC kind of trying to give you know the, PB, the the Chinese economy a little push when it was coming out of zero COVID a few months ago, that stuff's kind of reversed. It's kind of peaked out and topped out, and we are now starting to see global liquidity drain on a trailing three month basis, kind of you know in data through March, data through April.
0: So there was a lot of debate about, uh, let's say, the ECB, and they were bucking the trend of the Fed. So the Fed was saying one thing, and the ECB was kind of fighting it, saying, ah, we're not going to do that. They eventually capitulated, and now they're pretty much moving at least directionally in lockstep uh, in terms of uh, you know, creating tighter financial conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, we saw out of Asia uh, that wasn't the case. We actually did, as you mentioned uh, earlier this year, see them increasing the liquidity in the market. Who's in charge? Does the Fed lead kind of the global central bank, you know, strategy session, if you will? Does uh, China or the BOJ or, or somebody else, like, how do we think about, like, is there one central bank to look at? And what they say will basically then ripple through the rest of the central banks? Or are each one of these central banks actually making individual decisions for themselves?
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. So uh, no one's in charge, right? Like, let's, let's be honest here, right? The, the Fed, you know, the Fed is primarily partially in control of the dollar obviously with alongside the U.S. Treasury Department. And so you could say that given that we are on a global dollar reserve system and probably will be for an extended period of time. The Fed is technically in charge. But the reality is a none of these central banks is actually in charge of global liquidity. Mm-hmm. They all contribute individually, um, you know, to varying degrees and at various points in the cycle, based on their own economic drivers. You know, why would a central bank either add or subtract liquidity from its own economy? You can obviously infer. You know, the reasons for that growth being above or below trend, inflation being meaningfully above or being below trend, et cetera, know unemployment situation being uh, pretty adverse. And what we're seeing right now, particularly with respect to the European economy, particularly with respect to the Chinese economy, these economies are actually improving uh, You know pretty markedly in, re- in recent months. And so the probability that we need to see any sort of liquidity provision out of these localities is actually diminishing at the margins. Um, in fact, the ECB balance sheet continues to be in pretty uh, meaningful contraction. It was the PBOC's balance sheet and the Bank of Japan's balance sheet that really contributed to that meaningful uptick in global liquidity. I want to say on a trailing three month basis, it peaked in January at around one point four trillion dollars, but on an aggregate, it was somewhere around plus two trillion dollars off the lows of last year. And so, you know, you can a lot of folks want to make it easy you know, again, so much of investing is like people trying to find shortcuts and, and cut corners. And, and I just want to remind viewers, you know, there are people spending billions of dollars on research and, and trading and every, all this stuff. It's not easy. I wouldn't try to cut corners. But in the context of this global liquidity discussion, I think you can, to some degree, you know, kind of focus on these primary large major central banks, these primary large major economies, because they're that's going to get you to at least 90 95% of the total total outcome.
0: So we've seen to the start of 2023, Bitcoin was the best performing asset in Q1. It's up about 70% or so. And we saw a lot of assets going up, right? It wasn't just a Bitcoin or, or a cryptocurrency thing. Should there be a belief that similar to what we saw coming out of 2020 into 2021, like when all asset prices rise... Bitcoin is just kind of, uh, uh, you know, an asset price on steroids and it's going to go up more. And then if you go through the long tail of all the crypto assets, like they'll have higher and higher price appreciation. Or is there something different in, in the way that you analyze Bitcoin versus maybe some of the traditional assets?
1: I will say since the March regional banking panic here in the US, there has certainly become a greater store of value bid in the Bitcoin asset class than I think it had previously before. You know, I don't know that we can say what percentage of Bitcoin's price change, mm-hmm. price fluctuations are being driven by store value versus risk appetite, global liquidity, et cetera. But I certainly think that whatever that pie chart looked like in terms of global liquidity, global risk appetite, you know, global uh, or, you know, sort of store value, I think the, the pie slice associated with the shore value has certainly increased mm-hmm. um, in, in recent months. And, and part of the reason we're seeing that is because, you know, we have various metrics that kind of track whether or not, you know, hey, you know, is liquidity improving, is, you know, risk appetite improving vis-a-vis sector and style factor dispersion in the equity market. We can certainly look at the bond market, whether it be yield curves or forward spreads or et cetera, to give us an idea, okay, is you know, growth expectations rising or people wanting to take more risk and want to speculate more. And the reality is we've not seen all those traditional drivers of the Bitcoin price, you know, really improve. In fact, I would argue we've seen them actually deteriorate uh, in recent months. Uh, obviously, this infl- negative inflection in global liquidity from kind of the January, February highs of that of those time series has actually gotten worse. We've seen you know degradation in fixed income curves and money market curves. We have this really nasty record inversion in the one-month T-bill minus the three-month T-bill. is signaling a lot of stress in the collateral system, in the repo system, in the repo market. So I would argue global risk appetite has not really improved either as alongside global liquidity. Um, global liquidity is down, risk appetite at best is flat. But we've seen the Bitcoin price rally pretty sharply off the March lows of, 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 the March lows of 2023. And in our opinion, I think that's got to be some deposit flow instead of saying, hey, just give me an Uncle Sam piece of paper, a money market T-bill fund. Let me put some of this in, in a digital asset like Bitcoin as a longer term store of value. And, and it's no surprise to me that this is happening, given the deposit situation at Silicon Valley Bank, right? The Signature Bank. These are institutions. These are companies and people and individuals and founders who believe in these assets from a longer term perspective. So I think they, they came to a fork in the road and said, well, if my depository institution is going bust, where do I put all this money? I can put some of it in the T-bills, but I can also put some of it in, in something like
0: Bitcoin. Earlier we were talking about Bitcoin and the having that's about a year away or so and yep. you had mentioned some things in the analysis that you've done in terms of bitcoin's price and the volatility going into the having talk yeah. a little bit about that
1: yeah so so one thing that's kind of really made you know the, so we you, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago and I was last on the program which is you know we have this concept of the phase true credit cycle downturn uh, ahead of us and and for those of you who I don't want to rehash it for too much but the reality is when you go into a recession, particularly in the US economy, because we are the world's dominant economy, dominant asset markets, dominant reserve currency. Typically what happens, you have this sort of nasty blowout in credit spreads. You have this really nasty sort of repricing and sector and style factors version in the equity markets. And of course, you have a crash in the equity markets themselves and risk assets tend to correlate uh, with that, with that outcome. So that's an outcome that we still see ahead of us, you know, more than likely commencing in the second half of this year probably by late q3 given the timing with which we anticipate a recession to develop in the US economy we have a bunch of different models on, on kind of timing where we are in the business cycle uh, here in the US and, and the kind of the modal outcome of that those models suggest q4 is probably the the highest probability starting point for a recession so we were assuming that you know sometime in Q3 and Q4 we're going to be in the middle of pricing or at the beginning of pricing in that phase two credit cycle downturn one thing that sort of has me with respect to Bitcoin specifically that has me sort of you um, concerned about anticipating that's going to spill over into Bitcoin in the context of this kind of store of value discussion is the fact that we have a halving next spring, right? I want to say in April or May of 2024, and obviously halvings tend to be this, you know, very, very bullish event uh, for Bitcoin. And at least that's what I thought initially in my in my speculation. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, is Bitcoin even going to go down in this phase two credit cycle downturn? Let's say the spy gets to, you know, down 20 percent from here, it'd be like 3,200 or something. Does Bitcoin go to seventeen five again, or does Bitcoin stay where it is, or even appreciate? Because that'll be very close to that, you know, springtime having. So I did a little work, um, you know, this morning, kind of trying to identify: okay, is there a history of volatility in Bitcoin heading into the havings, or is the kind of the having the catalyst for the kind of record appreciation on the other side of that? And the you know the results of the, the the study that I did suggest that there's tends to be a lot of volatility mm-hmm. uh, in the year into Bitcoin. Um, you know, I, I can just read these off. You know, Sorry to, to not have these off the top of my head. I'm usually better than this. but you know, So into the November 2012 uh, Bitcoin halving, we saw a minus 39% uh, max drawdown in February of 2012. And so I'm looking at the year prior mm-hmm. to the halvings. Um, and we saw a minus 27% drawdown in August of 2012. In the July 16 having, we saw a minus 30% drawdown in August 15. We saw a minus 25% drawdown in November 15. We saw a minus 20% drawdown in February 16. And we saw another minus 20% drawdown in June of 16. And then lastly, into the May of 2020 having, we saw a minus 48% drawdown into December 19. And then another minus 53% drawdown kind of during COVID in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of crashes, man, in the year leading up to the having. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to put that out there and say, hey, look, I know this is going to be a very positive event. I think if we're having this conversation 18 months from now or 20 months from now at the end of 2024, Bitcoin's probably at 200,000, if not higher. And I definitely would fully uh, buy into that view. It's just the path to getting there, if you're trying to build a big position to take advantage of that, is likely to be very volatile. At least that's what history suggests. So basically the idea would be, yes, when the having occurs within 18
0: months or so of that having, you have these kind of r- record price appreciation. Um, but. In the year before the 12 months prior there are these kind of big 20 to 40 50 percent drawdowns in price and yeah. so again history could serve as a guide maybe it's not you maybe know it's perfect not, no. but it would tell us that when you see those drawdowns then those historically have been great buying opportunities versus uh, you know waiting till the having or anything like
1: that yeah the, the key take the, the key takeaway I'm trying to make is we know not we don't know but we assume Bitcoin is probably going to be very much higher in price by in 20 months. The problem is if you're buying it today at 30,000 you need to be aware that hey there's a long time series history of these material drawdowns very significant drawdowns mm-hmm. you know capital destroying drawdowns into that event and we also have this phase two credit cycle downturn that is completely separate and apart from anything that's going on in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So as a risk manager, and that's kind of what our clients, you know, kind of task us to do with 42 Macro, the number one thing we, we're trying to preach right now is patience and prudence. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to get people to run out and, and short Bitcoin or short the stock market. What we're trying to do is to have them understand, hey, look, there's going to be a better buying opportunity ahead of us, probably sometime in the next call at two to three quarters, and take advantage of that buying opportunity. But between now and then, the goal is not to get rich quick. It's to get rich smart over a longer period of time. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know if I agree with 20 months, but 24 months, which basically would give you one year till the halving, Mm -hmm. um, you know, give or take. So maybe actually even longer than that. Uh, And then 18 months, because like one of the things that's interesting to me, right, is like you get the price appreciation. We go back uh, May of 2020, we get the halving Mm -hmm. and it took a couple of months, maybe till like August, September. And then you started to see, Okay, here we go. Right. And we went from 10K to 30K very quickly. Yeah. And I from that. 30 to 60 happened from, I think literally Bitcoin hit $31,000 on December 31st. Like cause it was going up a thousand dollars a day and it was like 27,000 on December 27th, 28,000 on December 28th. Right. I remember that very well. <laughs> it, was cra- it was crazy, <laughs> right? It was crazy. And so it went from 30, 31,000 to 64,000 by March. Mm-hmm. And so in literally 90 days, it doubled in price, right? Yeah. Which is this incredible run. Now it had a huge drawdown, 50%, but it kind of just returned right back to where it had been in. December yep. right which was still 300% higher than where it had been at the having point maybe a little bit more i think it was like $8500 or so when it hit the having and if that had been the whole thing it'd be like wow we went from you know $8500 to 64,000 that is this you know really crazy uh kind of uh, appreciation but that drawdown happened to coincide with uh China kicking out a bunch of the miners and and uh more than 50% of the hash rate going so off. summer on. 21 summer of 21 and all summer long it basically was just flat kind of hanging around thirty thousand dollars and then when we got into q3 all of a sudden here we go again and obviously it peaked at sixty nine thousand back in november of 21 and so when you look at that what i always wonder is like how much of the quote-unquote you know price appreciation happened really between like september of 20 and march of 21 and that was driven by the having versus if it had the full 18 months like you Mm -hmm. actually get a little bit of a higher price but if that uh hash rate getting kicked out of china doesn't happen would it have gone higher what like what would have been different we'll never know but like to me that is like one of the more under discussed things is just like you basically had this price appreciation that was occurring, kind of right on schedule. Yeah. Then you get this external shock from China making this decision, fifty percent of the hash rate leaves.
1: Right, it's a pretty big deal. But yet
0: you still even got another all-time high before the end of the year. Totally. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about now.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, uh, look, that was that was a very wonderful time for me. Uh, you know, I bought my first Bitcoin in October of uh, 2020. That was a good. That was a good run. A uh, very good run. Um. Yeah, I think I know. I mean, you and I were on your program back then, saying I think Bitcoin's going to one hundred thousand. Yeah, and quite frankly, I think it would have gone to one hundred thousand had it not had that you know you know exogenous catalyst in China. Mm -hmm. Um. You know. So you know, I think this asset class is going to be you know, for a long period of time fraught with sort of exogenous events, whether it be regulatory, I mean, mostly regulatory. Obviously that was a regulatory event in China. You know, they're not, we're not the only ones who can regulate by the way. Um, but this is, you know, I think the, the underlying message of the resiliency of the asset class, and I don't necessarily mean resiliency from the price appreciation standpoint, I mean, resiliency from the perspective of this thing ain't going anywhere, mm-hmm. right? Like we had FTX and Celsius and Luna and all this other stuff happened in the last kind of 12 months. And not one time did I see anyone really question the longer term viability of Bitcoin mm-hmm. throughout this entire process. I mean, we've seen people blow up and left and right, and put in handcuffs left and right. And, it's, it's a, and to me, so I'm very proud of the asset class for that particular perspective. I just I think, you know, just from a risk managed perspective, I think, you know, there's a, the, the path to getting to this, you know, rainbow and puppy dog type outcome. It's you know you got to walk through the got to walk through the hood for a little bit. What are the institutions doing right
0: now? Are they mostly in cash? Are they looking at Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies? Are they in equities,
1: uh, oil? Like where are they kind of tactically looking? So that's a phenomenal question. So I'll, I'll bucket this into into different categories of institutional investors. They're sort of your long, long only kind of you know you know just you know longer term you know mm-hmm. twelve to eighteen month time horizon on on any holding style investors. Um, those are your kind of large mutual funds, pension funds, and then you have your sort of, you know, kind of hedge fund oriented strategies. You know, these people tend to, you know, they kind of generally need to be making money on a month to month basis at the bare minimum, not having, you know, drawdowns in excess of three to 5%, you know, particularly these large multi manager market neutral players. The, the latter category, these, these market neutral pod shop type hedge fund vehicles, you know, to a man, woman and child they everyone I talk to and we have, you know, many clients across the space, they are all trading as. With a higher frequency than they ever have in their entire career, mm-hmm. like the the, the short termism in that in that community of investors has never been more like ferocious, and I think that's part of like why you know. Ignore Bitcoin for a second. Just look at the chart of the S and P 500. You know, since May of 2020 of last year, it's going to almost be a year we've been bouncing around more or less between let's call it 20 4200 and 3800. You know, we went to 4300 in August, and then we went to like 3500 in October. But for the most part, we've been flat. You pull up a, a year-long chart of the S&P, it basically hasn't gone anywhere. But what it has done, it's been very violent. You know, We've seen like a 10% rally, then a 15% drawdown, then a 20% rally, then a 10% drawdown. These are like annual returns. Mm-hmm. So we've had like five or six years worth of returns to carve out if you're a good trader, if you're a good uh, active manager to take advantage of. So that community of investors is extremely kind of narrowly focused on, you know, kind of the, what's really happening right in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And that concerns me from a medium term perspective because their their foresight on, you know, the phase two credit cycle downturn, some of these longer term, like kind of um, macro cycle risks that I think, you know, we're likely to start to the rear their ugly head and towards the back end of the year. I just don't think you're gonna have enough investors focused on that, which will allow you to have kind of a, a market crash style outcome. Um, style when you're talking about the long only institutional money managers, everyone is positioned for down dollar you know short the dollar and every derivative trade of shorting the dollar whether it be improving global growth whether it be emerging market outperformance over u.s equities whether it be commodities over you know um hard assets you know commodity physical assets over digital assets you know we've seen a little bit of a crowding back into the tech space but by, by and large you know those investors and i've been having these same conversations really for the past kind of four or five months which is you know how do i take advantage of down dollar up global growth without actually just being long China, given all the regulatory and geopolitical concerns that are emanating out of that economy. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of consensus across you know kind of what I would consider traditional Wall Street right now, uh, whether it be just like knife fighting for you know basis points on a, on a daily weekly basis, or whether it be just you know short the dollar. Both of those things I think could be proven very wrong you get to kind of one to two quarters from now. Maybe not one quarter now, but certainly I think by the end of Q3, this concept of down dollar, you know, everything up global growth, I think will fall by the wayside. At least that's what our models are suggesting. And then the concept of, I don't really have to worry about medium term risk, you know, Mm -hmm. being in the right exposures from a medium term perspective on the, in the kind of the shorter term pot shop uh, exposures, our head um, managers, that to me is a big worry to me. Cause again, When you get into the back half of the year, everyone's going to start to recognize the deterioration in the labor cycle. You know, kind of, okay, we actually are might be heading into recession, but they can't all get out of the same pipes at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can't all go buy uh, Procter & Gamble at once and sell everything else you own because this is how markets crash. Markets are very, they've been very illiquid for a few years now.
0: Mm -hmm. When you look at the current market situation, we are heading into uh, next year, a presidential election. We know that the Fed—they uh, are not an elected official; nope. they are appointed. Does the president matter? We hear a lot of debate: Trump tax cuts or Biden this, and and sometimes it's tax positive things, tax
1: negative things, both sides of the aisle. Like there's all these debates. Does the president matter? Increasingly so, but not at all on an absolute basis. Okay. On a relative basis, they're certainly gaining share. Uh, you can, this really goes back to the Obama administration. Obviously, Trump you know, kicked it into steroids. But this concept of executive orders, and me- mostly because we've seen so much gridlock in Congress that you can't really get anything done that's from a lasting budgetary perspective. So executive orders have been kind of the way we've enacted policy here in the U.S. for, for quite a long time now, for over a decade now. And so we're seeing Biden and Biden with the most recent executive order, you know, banning investment in Chinese uh, industries, you know, high tech industries as well. I think we're going to continue to see more of that in the context of this you know, hyper grid locked you know, DC economy. I mean, we have a potential US sovereign debt uh, default on our hands in a few months and neither side is willing to negotiate. Or at least you know, the Democrats are unwilling to negotiate, and the Freedom Caucus is unwilling to negotiate unless they get what they want, which is clearly not a negotiation. And so, to me, I think you know, does the president does the president matter? Yes. Do they really matter in terms of asset markets? Probably not. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you you know, in terms of ranking this, clearly the Fed is is sacrosanct to investments in the U.S. economy, given you know they control they don't control, but they materially contribute. To the ebbs and flows of the the liquidity cycle Mm -hmm. um obviously congress would be number two in the context of them being the institution that determines the budget they're the ones that determine the size of the budget deficit the timing of payments on these all the stuff you know where the money is getting allocated in the economy the redistribution or lack thereof in the economy and so i think you know those two institutions and for a long time they're they're going to matter a lot more than the president but the president matters as much as it has in my career as much as it has today or today it matters as much as it has ever in my career
0: yeah that's crazy where can we send people to find you on the internet
1: oh appreciate you man always a pleasure to come uh, come top it up with you man I love the office really proud of you guys uh so come check us out 42 macro uh you know we do as as you can clearly tell uh we do institutional uh, research for every investor that's a, that's our model 42 macro.com 42 macro.com and we're on twitter i'm on twitter at uh, 42 uh, macro weather uh we have a private twitter account 42 macro aware for our for our subscribers
0: awesome i learn every single time appreciate you man. macro.com everyone go check it out we'll do it again
1: uh, always always a pleasure man thank you